0: Welcome to Forward, a podcast from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Allison Innes, and as you probably know by episode four, we speak to a different researcher each episode to hear about what they're working on and what they're doing in their classes. So today's guest is going to be taking us all the way back to ancient Rome, a time period dear to my own heart, as our listeners no doubt know. Dr. Fanny Delansky is an associate professor with the Department of Classics and Archaeology. Her research focuses on childhood and family life in Rome from about 200 BCE to 200 CE. She has published on several family festivals and rituals, including the Parentalia, the Saturnalia, and the Toga Virilis ceremony, a coming of age ritual for Roman boys. Her work has also looked at evidence for children's play, including dolls, and how ideas about play intersect with ideas of gender identity and education. So welcome, Fanny. Thank you, Alison. It's great to be here. Now, did I get the pronunciation of all those festivals right, <laughs> or close enough? Close, close, close enough. Yeah, that was great. It's been a, it's been a few years since uh, since I've had the occasion to to read some Latin terms aloud. <laughs> So I wanted to start our conversation today just asking you how you got into classics and what it was about the history, the culture, the language of uh, ancient Rome that really sparked your interest.
1: Absolutely, it's a question I get asked um, often when people know that I'm a professor of, of Latin and Roman history. Um, so I think there were two really sort of decisive points in my childhood. I've wanted to be wanted to be a classicist from the time I was very young, which is unusual. So the first concerns um, Latin. Um, as a child, I was studying French and also Hebrew. And and my parents had gone through the school system in Quebec, in, in Montreal, and so studying Latin was not mandatory, but it was it was an elective. And so m- both of my parents had studied Latin, and they had lots of old Latin school books and dictionaries kicking around our basement. And so I became curious about the language because of its connections with French and also with English. So one, one side of my interest comes through the language. And then I think probably in the early 80s, when I was um, you know, maybe somewhere between seven and 10, National Geographic published 2 issues. that focused on the eruption of Vesuvius. My grandparents had generously gifted my sisters and and me with a subscription and um, I remember this arrived and one of the issues had on the cover a skeleton of a woman with her jewelry and the caption on, on the front page said the dead do tell tales and inside the cover were things like carbonized loaves of bread and a child's cradle that you know, that had been charred in the eruption and money and all sorts of of evidence for daily life. And so that was for me really kind of my my entree into social history. And and then I studied as an undergraduate and um, just kept going from there.
0: And what about the Roman family and childhood in particular?
1: So it's it's interesting. Those were not actually topics that I'd I'd always been interested um, in the study of of social life. Um, and I suppose the the family kind of tangentially. But really, as an undergraduate, I was interested in women's history. It was kind of the the, the real rise of of interest in in women in antiquity in the 90s. And when I started my master's degree um, at the University of Victoria, I was working with Keith Bradley, who's an eminent Roman social historian, um, an expert on Roman slavery, the Roman family, and Roman childhood, and um, um, in my second year, I was going to be writing a, a thesis. So towards the end of the first year, he asked me, you know, what do you want to work on for your project? And, you know, I floated some ideas. And he said, well, you know, nobody's worked on this coming of age ceremony, this toga ceremony. And why don't you go away and, and spend some time investigating it? And so I did. And I came back and I said, you know, like, this is OK, but it doesn't, it doesn't really speak to me. I don't really want to work on this. And he wasn't, he wasn't thrilled about that <laughs> response. And uh, he said, OK, we'll go, you know, go in and research something that, you know, interests you and come back and we'll we'll see where this goes. And so I spent several weeks working on the preliminary research on a project related to soldiers families in the Roman world and I came to the the sort of sad and frustrating conclusion which I think researchers often come to which is that the project was not viable um, on the one hand it was too much evidence for a master student in that early stage at the same time it was sort of too little evidence just the nature of the evidence was you know sort of going to be too challenging and so I came back to him and I said okay you know I spent you know five or six weeks working on this and basically um you know I wasn't successful and he said okay Hey, well, it's almost April. Why don't you go back to this toga virilis topic and, and revisit it and see if, you know, see if you can make it your own. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that um, there were all sorts of dimensions that I could explore, gender, sexuality, symbolism, you know, comparative religions, lots of things that, that interested me. And in the course of that project, I, I needed to do a fair bit of background reading on the Roman family and also on, on children and, and youth in antiquity. And um, so it, it sort of went, um, went from there. So
0: you've kind of hinted at this. You've mentioned Vesuvius and I think that's something um, a lot of people will be familiar with because it is this dramatic moment in time, time capsule. But then also this problem of of sources. So what kinds of sources do we have for children and play in the ancient world and Rome specifically.
1: That's yeah. That's a, a great question. Um, so my interest in, in children and and play actually brought me to working much more with material evidence than I ever had before, um, because it's one of the topics for which we don't have, we don't have a lot of literary evidence. We certainly have some, but we have wonderful material evidence. We have toys that survive from, um, I mean, far farther back than Roman antiquity. Um, but you know, we have dolls and we have yo-yos and we have balls and rattles. Wonderful, um, wonderful toys for babies. And we also have literary evidence that can help us to contextualize that. But we just have a tremendous amount of archaeological evidence. We also have art historical evidence, um, depictions on these wonderful sarcophagi for children who um, obviously died at a um, a too too early age. And we have wonderful depictions of them playing with animals and sometimes playing with their toys. And um, so for a a topic like childhood, art historical and archaeological evidence is is just it's so rich and um, it's it's only really been within the last you know maybe 15 or 20 years that people have started to tap into that as a a source classics has for so long been um, classics not archaeology but classics has been so text-based and and so I think people's sort of go-to was text we also do have lots of lots of literary texts um, legal texts inscriptions funerary inscriptions are often a a wonderful glimpse into the Mm -hmm. the sentiments that um, that people had some of them are formulaic of course kind of like a hallmark card but um, I think you can kind of peel back from that and and find evidence for how you know how people felt what sort of expectations people had those those sorts of things and some of the images um, I seem to recall
0: now it was a long time ago but uh, being, being in a class with you and we looked at a tombstone that had like a child with their pet goose or something like that it was right. very and 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 even all of the these thousands of years later um, kind of looking at that it, it was very humanizing in a way. Do you find that with what you're studying that, that that there's a very human perspective, an emotional an
1: emotional perspective to what you do like it's not just like, very clinical and... <laughs> Sir, yes, I mean, it's certainly, I would say less so in some ways working on the Roman family, broadly speaking, but certainly working on, on childhood. And um, I also work on disasters in the ancient world. And, um, you know, we are currently like. living through um, one one such disaster in, in the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, both of both my work on disasters and certainly my work on childhood, I, I think um, it's hard to be totally detached from, um, you know, reading an epitaph for a baby who died, you know, just a few days days old or um, you know a a grandfather talking about how wonderful it is to to play with his grandson and and see him learning to walk and learning him you know learning to talk and those sorts of things that I I think it it is um, as I said it's hard to be detached I think there I think many people do have somewhat of an emotional reaction to the material that that they're working with and I think I think there's sort of a a relatability right even though obviously the Romans were very different from us in many ways um, there are also real points of commonality and I think once you start Looking at at family life and childhood, um, you start to see those those things that you can say, oh yeah, that you know that's the same thing happens um, today. I, I actually was just teaching yesterday. I. Wednesday I had my class on ancient education and uh, we had been talking in the previous class about an article on pet keeping in the Roman world and you mentioned this this image of, of a boy with a goose and you know pet keeping is something that obviously many children in the 21st century have pets and they learn about themselves and they learn responsibilities and life and death and reproduction all sorts of things from owning a pet and I think the students were kind of struck by how many things were were similar even though the Romans' relationships to animals were, you know, were very different in, in some ways than than ours are today. So I, I think there are lots of um, lots of threads that kind of weave through, and and lots of ways that it it is relatable. And it, it's hard to be clinical. I wish sometimes that I I could be a little bit uh, more clinical. Sometimes it's a little bit depressing, honestly. You know, when you when you're working on these topics, you know, dealing with infant and childhood mortality and catastrophic events that that obviously radically change people's lives, it's it's hard not to to kind of think about. Um, Um, you know, the very human dimension to, to ancient history.
0: For sure. So, we're using the word family, and family can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. There's a lot of different ways that we can define family. So, what does it mean for the Romans? Um, so I know obviously to get kind of the in-depth we would need to uh, take your course but maybe you can give us a little bit of a taste of, of what a Roman family looked like and what how it might be familiar to us or in, in ways that it might not be familiar.
1: Yeah that, that's a good question. I, so, So first of all I think we should think about rather than a Roman family or the Roman family, we should think about Roman families in the same way that today family, as you said, means different things and looks like different things to different people. So, um, so most of our, our evidence from the ancient world concerns the freeborn, and it also concerns the upper classes. So if we think about a, a Roman upper class family, you know, names that people might be familiar with someone like a Cicero, um, or a Pliny, or a Seneca, these were people who were wealthy slave owners, they would have had had a nuclear family so a, you know a, a spouse and a wife I should say not a spouse but a wife specifically and and children um, that was the the point of Roman marriage was really to produce children that you know the next generation but then they would have had dozens sometimes even hundreds of slaves they would have had free dependents and they would have lived in a household with those slaves with their children sometimes with as I said you know people who were former slaves so a very different I think configuration obviously than most of us are used to. The nuclear family was not unimportant, but again, people thought about family. The upper class family is really a household because the slaves are ubiquitous and and they're so essential to to daily life. But once we move further down on the social scale, that's where you start to see that family meant all sorts of things to all sorts of people. And so um, when you look at things like funerary inscriptions or inscriptions that relate to commemorative festivals, I've worked on the Parentalia, which was a a nine-day long commemorative festival. And what we find farther down the social scale is that people didn't have, they weren't wealthy and they couldn't, You know, they couldn't rely on this same structure that the upper classes had to have an heir or maybe multiple heirs to have all of these dependents. And so people entrust... Other people who are colleagues, who are you know also former slaves or also members of the urban poor, um, in a kind of quasi-familial relationship, we find evidence for families where you know it's simply a, a couple and 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 a slave, or maybe it's just a couple, or maybe it's a widow living with with her adult children and their families, grandparents sometimes living with you know their their children and, and grandchildren. So I think a real spectrum of of families and the term in the Roman world is actually much more elastic, I think, than than people originally thought. There, there was a big focus on kind of the nuclear family. I think because that's what we what people were used to in in the 20th century, right? If you ask mm-hmm. people what's a family, it's a mother and a father and um, you know ideally two or more children. And if you ask people in the 21st century what does a family look like, I think you get all different kinds of answers right blended families individual households circles yeah. of care yes rather than like family trees like there's different, yes different perspectives absolutely so yeah. we're very much i think yeah. we were very much influenced by the roman elite right these you know, longstanding senatorial families, where the nuclear family and particularly producing sons um, was a big part of of what they how they envisioned family. But then you start to see once you kind of peel things away a little bit that family is something different. Even if you look at someone like Cicero, he talks a lot about basically what seems to be raising his children with his brother's children he talks about the children in a collective term they're our children it's it's not your son quintus it's our quintus right and so you again you start to see that well maybe family isn't maybe we've imposed this rigid idea of family comprising certain individuals in certain settings and and that for the romans maybe it was actually much more fluid maybe it was more situational Because they also used
0: adoption as well. And even as adults, they would use adoption in political senses.
1: Right, I mean, adoption if you lacked a male heir, generally not adoption of of women. I mean, it certainly was a practice, but not adoption in in the in the way that today people adopt, not formal adoption. Um, and at the same time, there was fostering of children. We have, um, again, we we need to kind of expand what you know what we think about in terms of relationships because there are all sorts of of quasi familial relationships where people are raising children that are not their biological children, but there's some kind of relationship. They're not necessarily slave children whom they own. There's some kind of other relationship there, and so lots of different strategies, I guess, for, for people not to be alone, for people to pass on their property to people, as you said, to have some sort of means of care as, as they grew older. So what about
0: families for enslaved people? Do we have, I mean, I suppose funerary inscriptions would probably be our primary source for that like what what did those families look like because presumably those families could be the the biological family could be split up very easily
1: absolutely so you're right on all accounts you know our our best evidence for family life among the enslaved are funerary inscriptions um sometimes they tell us a little bit. Sometimes they tell us a lot. Um, most of the time, it's more on on the side of you know sort of minimal information. But we we find slaves you know forming romantic unions, producing children, having close relationships. But you're right that that certainly the the life of any enslaved person in the ancient world um, was precarious, and so families could be split up. Um, slave owners didn't hesitate, it seems, to to sell a parent, a child, to separate individuals. And so I I think this must have been a a very challenging existence. We certainly find evidence for what seems to be slaves living together within a household for a long time and and kind of cultivating some sort of family life. Um, Unfortunately, outside of funerary inscriptions, We don't have that kind of evidence because, of course, most of our literary works that survive are by freeborn elite males who were not interested in writing about these sorts of things. And, And the evidence that we have from former slaves who write, tend not to write about their experiences as slaves. So we don't have, you know, sort of a Harriet Jacobs or a Frederick Douglass from the Roman world who gives us that perspective on what was it like to be an enslaved person and and how can we kind of reconstruct that sort of family life. And that's where comparative evidence can be helpful because we lack those voices. Even though we have the voices of former slaves, they tend not to talk about their life as slaves and they certainly don't talk about their familial relationships or their romantic relationships or their friendships. It's very much as former slaves, their relationship to their master their relationship to you know to, to other mm-hmm. freed persons which makes sense from
0: their perspective because if you got out of slavery that's not something you would want to be reminding
1: people that that was your status right I mean there's yeah. no sort of abolitionist movement yeah. in in the Roman world in the way that there obviously was in in the modern world and so as I said you, you don't have those voices where people are providing for others what their life was like as a slave to show how you know how awful the institution of slavery was you don't have that in the Roman world so people People have kind of closed the door a bit on that part of their life and, and now they're focusing on, you know, the next phase.
0: Yeah. But even once they were freed, they would still continue in many cases, wouldn't they, to have some kind of relationship with their former master as a
1: patron? Is that? With the master as a patron, yeah. right? Uh, former slaves owed services to, to their master, um, to their now patron. And, um, you know, slavery is such an interesting institution in the Roman world because I, th- I think as modern viewers looking at this, I think it's easy for us to say that we'll have, you know, as soon as somebody was manumitted as soon as they were freed of course they, they'd want to have nothing to do with this institution how could how could somebody who'd been a slave for example go on to own slaves him or herself mm. and what we find is that it's it's a complicated relationship and so former slaves owed services to their patrons Former slaves sometimes marry their patrons, both men and and women. Um, they can. Some of them continue to have what seem to be sort of longstanding relationships. So again, there isn't there isn't that sense that as once manumitted, people wanted to distance themselves from the institution of slavery. It's not that easy. There's sort of a transitional period. Many former slaves go on to own slaves themselves. Slaves could own slaves. So again, it's a far more complicated set of relationships than you know than than we're used to. And I think. Obviously, the evidence of the antebellum South, for example, other aspects of, you know, Caribbean Atlantic slavery can be useful for for giving us insights into the institution. But I think we have to keep recognizing that it's not a copy and paste. That's right. It's not. It's it's not.
0: Yeah. So in terms of the roles within the family, like, are, are we talking about what we would recognize as a traditional patriarchal? So, again, coming, coming back to the elite families um, who we have more evidence for, women in the house, men... Working outside or in politics, or or is it much more complicated than than that? You're so, not so in your again. Head, so so <laughs> again, I would say I would again I
1: would say it's more complicated. I mean, certainly in earlier periods of history in classical Greece, you have much more of a separation, seclusion of of women. Elite Roman women, I think, were much more mobile than than we might expect. Um, many of them were very influential. They were out and about doing social things. They were power brokers. They were patronesses. They were we're doing all sorts of things roman society was also very much punctuated by the rhythms of religious festivals and so there were a lot of religious festivals sacrifices activities that would have drawn a whole spectrum of society and so i I think yes it's certainly true that elite roman women spent more time at home than elite roman men did right women were not in the forum they weren't in the senate you know they weren't governing provinces or or you know marshalling armies but i think that they had very active social lives and elite roman Women tended not to do a lot of the hands-on childcare that a modern woman might well do. Even an affluent modern woman today, who might have a nanny or um, a housekeeper, probably still does a, a you know a certain amount of of that kind of hands-on childcare. In an elite household, it was typical to have slave child uh, minders, nurses cradle rockers, pedagogues who would then take the, the boy to school, um, you know, a whole a whole host of individuals who would do much of, of the work of, of parenting. Um, and there are all sorts of debates about, you know, because of that, were elite parents kind of emotionally distant from, from their children and did they not really care because they had this this whole um, you know kind of mini mini army of of slaves um, looking after their their children. It's a it's a, a difficult question. Yeah. To, to grapple with. So I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to pick
0: which one to which one to ask next. But uh, just coming back to childhood, when we're talking about children, for the Romans, kind of what age range did they consider a child a child? I've heard people posit the idea that childhood today is is a much longer period of life maybe than than it had been in the past. And I'm just wondering if that's something that holds true
1: for, for the Romans. So I think it really depends on gender and it really depends on juridical status. So if we start with the elite, um, the freeborn and the upper classes, you know, I think for boys childhood continued into their early teens and then there's a a debate about kind of how long did adolescence really stretch on. Adolescence might be sort of the prolonged childhood that, that you're thinking of because though boys could have this ritual where they ceremonially became men by exchanging their togas. And then they were, you know, eligible to do various things socially and participate more actively to vote, to serve in the army. Um, We kind of have this long period from their teens into their early twenties where boys Many elite boys seem to have been continuing in in this period of of adolescence. Um, for elite girls, many of them would have been married in their early to to mid teens, certainly by their later teens. And so, if we think about childhood, um, you know, I, th- I think we have a very different kind of perspective there for the lower classes and certainly for slaves. I think I think it sort of depends on what what you think childhood entails, Um, you know, for a slave, they would have been working from the time that they were quite young or a freeborn, um, a poor freeborn individual or a former slave probably would have been involved in in earning you know earning their keep as it were but that doesn't mean that they weren't enjoying aspects of of childhood so it's it's hard to kind of put an age range on it especially because we don't have the same sorts of rigid markers that we have in a modern society so school was not compulsory at a certain age kids didn't have to go to school though many did um, so we don't have the, the same kind you know to, to be able to say well childhood ends at you know at at 13 or 14 when you begin high school or when you do this or we need to do that. We don't have that. Even this coming of age ceremony had a flexible age range. I was just about to ask when when did that happen? So from the evidence that we have, it seems that most boys tended to take the toga to to have this ritual coming of age um, between the ages of fourteen and sixteen. But we know that some boys it was a bit younger. Particularly, much of our evidence concerns the imperial family, and of course, what happened um, in the emperor's family uh, was not. You know, there are a lot. Were lots of motivations behind um, giving a boy the toga earlier or later so we have boys in the imperial family who were as young as 13 and we have boys who are 18 going on 19 and you think well probably you know some something a little bit you know strange is going on there but most boys it seems that it was somewhere between the ages of 14 and 16 if you think about maybe comparative religious ceremonies or bar mitzvah for example in the jewish tradition occurs for a boy at 13, occurs for a a girl's bat mitzvah takes place at 12. So that's a much, it's a defined age, you know, yes, people might flex it, but there's a set age when that happens. Um, so even, even, you know, with this coming of age ceremony, we have much more kind of fluidity and it seems from the evidence that we have that, It depended um, often not on the boy, but on the father and on other circumstances, what was going on politically, you know, what, when was an opportune time to announce to the world that you had a son who had come of age and was now going to continue the family name and, and the glory of your, of your family. Um, so a different, a different kind of situation.
0: So, uh, so you mentioned that young girls would be, well, I say young because by today's standards, it would be extremely young, um, being married at 13, 14. What was the expectation for, for the boys? Um, at, at what age would they be expected to be marrying and uh, producing a family?
1: So within, you know, the the senatorial elite, so that's the very top echelon of society, right, 300 senatorial families, and then we have, you know, a, an elite group um, within that. Those boys probably would have been marrying in their early 20s, sometimes a bit later for a first marriage. So we have, you know, we have a considerable age gap even at a first marriage for an elite girl, you know, let's say somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, 16, earlier for some girls for sure, maybe a bit later for others, but let's say kind of mid-teens, but boys certainly a fair bit later. Um, and then once we move down the the social scale, both girls and and boys are marrying a bit later. So sub-elite girls may well have married in their late teens, which I think. Again, might seem young still for us today, but is not as young certainly um, as marrying at 14 or, or marrying at at 16, or for a boy, you know, let's say marrying in his early 20s or his his mid um, his mid 20s.
0: Yeah, and you did mention the imperial family as well, and 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 um, Augustus had very clear ideas of of family and what he felt a Roman family should be. Do those filter down beyond the elite? Some of his ideas about about family.
1: I mean, certainly because we're we're dealing with a patriarchal society, some of those ideas, I, th- I think existed regardless of juridical status, regardless of of social class. It's harder to kind of access that sort of information because, again, so many of our sources, are elite males and so how do you you know how do you know whether the ideology professed by an augustus or you know a subsequent emperor was really being kind of taken on by um by other classes it's it's hard to to get at that but um fair enough but i but i but i think but i think that you know the sort of the the basic structures the the gendered expectations um for men and and women and and obviously um you know rome was a highly stratified society on the basis of juridical Status right, whether you were freeborn or a slave or a former slave, and then once you mix class into that and and wealth, um, it, you know even more even more stratified.
0: So then, um, and again, this is, would be different for girls and and boys as as you've already alluded to in terms of education. They're presumably being educated and trained to do very different. Functions in their future family and in their society.
1: Right, for sure. I mean, we have much more information for the education of boys, but it um, it does seem that even among the upper classes, that girls received a fair bit of elementary education. Um, there was a tendency there among the elite for kids to be educated at home with private tutors. There are interesting debates that I think would maybe resonate with with listeners in terms of concerns about when you send your your kids to school, is the class going to be too big? Is the teacher going to be able to manage it? Is your child going to get enough individual attention? And then there are concerns also about, you know, what's the environment like? Is the teacher a a good teacher? Is the teacher a morally sound um, individual? And so girls, upper class girls and boys probably were receiving a fair bit of the same Education, you know, through their early years, let's say from kind of, you know, six or seven until maybe they were 10, 11. And that's where we start to see a divide. Elite males. Even even not so elite males were the, the ideal was that they would become good speakers, that they'd potentially become lawyers, that they'd be able to speak in the forum in the Senate. And so we have a, a different a different educational and career and, and an educational path that's supporting a career path to become those orators to become those those public speakers. And we don't have a lot of evidence for girls having access to that. Of course they couldn't participate actively in politics in the same way. And so that seems to be a path that that for the most part gets closed off but we know of some elite women who were said to have been very eloquent probably had received some rhetorical education at home maybe had modeled their fathers when we look at other classes education was something that um, was not accessible to to people who simply didn't have the means for it so lower classes um, some slave children would have received some basic education but then it simply was too expensive at a certain point there was no state sponsored education there, there were
0: no, no schools boards there were no organized schools there was no free
1: school there was no no No, free no free school no free education whatsoever of a formal nature and so if you you know if your family simply couldn't afford to send you to school or send you to school past a certain point or have a tutor in home you know in home tutoring you then that was it Um, and and we have interesting texts from the roman world where people talk about this Um, I, i just talked about this with my class the other day you know where there's an individual who was from sort of a, a kind of a, I guess, what we might think of as a middle-class family. And he says at a certain point, you know, the, my, pa- my family couldn't support me continuing with my education. And so my father and my uncles talked about it and they decided that I should learn a trade and I should go into a profession that was honorable and where I'd be able to make a decent living. And so he apprentices with his uncle, who's a, a sculptor and a stonemason. And on his first day of his apprenticeship, he breaks a big block of, of stone and his uncle beats him and he runs home to his mother and he has a dream that night where sort of craft, you know, the the kind of manual labor, the figure representing manual labor is trying to persuade him to continue with becoming a sculptor and a stonemason. And the figure that represents Paideia, kind of cultured learned education, she's trying to persuade him that no, no, he should find a way to continue his studies. And I'm sure that this this happened, that um, average children, especially boys, were kind of presented with this unfortunate crossroads where they couldn't afford to continue with their studies Even if they wanted to, some found ways to do it and probably many had to go into some sort of um, perfectly respectable profession, but not necessarily one that involved higher education. Yeah.
0: So I wanted to come back to religion because you have been talking about some of these festivals and I know that you do look at religion as part of your research you also supervise some master students who have I know who have worked on on Roman religion and um, again religion is one of those words that we might think we know what it is but it might be very different for for an ancient Roman um, so I was wondering if you could kind of Explain to us a little bit about what Roman religion looked like and is it something that would be familiar to us today or is it a very different idea of religion?
1: So I think that it would look very different to to most people today. Um, I think there are some aspects that probably would seem similar. For example, prayer is a part of of Roman ritual. Roman ritual um, that I think people wouldn't find so foreign that people prayed to the gods for all sorts of of things. It was a polytheistic society, and people believed that the gods were involved in all sorts of aspects of life. Um, so I don't think prayer would be something that would strike people as as being um, strange. Are hard to understand, but I think certainly sacrifice, both blood sacrifice to so the sacrifice of animals, but also um, the, the sacrifice of the dedication of, of um, non-animal materials, incense, plants, things like that, milk, wine, um, that sort of ritual I think would probably be harder for people to to kind of get their heads around. And then the whole practice of, of divination, so being able to communicate with the gods by examining, trying to find signs of their will whether in in the sky or in the activities of birds or in the entrails of a sacrificial victim. I think that's where that's where Roman religion starts to to feel like something that is is very different, I think, from most people's uh, knowledge or, or personal religious practice in, in a modern context. I think the festivals, even though, you know, what comprised the festivals, I, I think people would probably find, well, they, you know, they, they don't do those sorts of things. There are certainly elements, I think, that are similar. Um, most Roman festivals involved feasting. And I think that that's something that is, is common to most religious traditions. I mean, obviously there, are um, you know, People celebrate religious holidays that don't involve that don't involve any any eating, but I think there are a lot of a lot of holidays that do. There are a lot of cultural holidays. You know, you think about something like Thanksgiving, which may be religious for some people, but I think for many people is not, and it centers around a big feast, um, right? And and people come together, and and so I think the the kind of the ability of religious ritual, whether it's something small scale or certainly a festival, to bring people together who have a common purpose in in being there. Um, I think people would find that interesting and and I think familiar. We have a little bit of evidence for festivals being times that were kind of fraught when you had all of your family come together. And um, there's one there's one Roman festival where uh, the poet Ovid tells tells people that, you know, basically all of the dysfunctional family members should should stay away, right? And he, and he enumerates. He enumerates the people who shouldn't be coming to the party because this is a festival. It's called the Karistia, and it's supposed to be about, um, you know, kind of good goodwill and um, you know family affection. And so you don't want the people who are going to be squabbling and causing dissension to come to, you know, to come to this this festival. So I think I think I, most
0: people probably have a list of of <laughs> of uh, family members to avoid at uh, you know the especially when they get into the wine and the uh, spirits
1: (laughs) that's probably that's probably true but I think I think there I think there are elements that would be familiar to people and and elements that would be for and I mean I you know certainly the fact that that Roman society was polytheistic that there were many many gods um, I think is is something that um, you know would be difficult for for people to especially in a largely Judeo-Christian context for people to to kind of Appreciate how that might have have operated. But then, as I said, I think that, you know, I think there are are aspects of ritual that would seem more familiar to people.
0: So did people tend to kind of choose to engage in ritual for for particular deities? Um, So... Like maybe if they were ill, they would do a ritual for a god associated with health, um, or, or did they kind of like this is, this is this is the god that I'm going to worship and uh, stick I, with that, or like
1: I think I think there was I think there was a first of all there's a a big pantheon there are a lot of deities there are new deities being incorporated there are kind of um you know sort of modifications of of gods that exist in other parts of of the roman world who are kind of brought into the pantheon i think we need to think about a very plural religious practice um and also ritual really in many ways i think probably playing a role in different parts of the day and in different Mm -hmm. ways for different people so you know your example of, of someone being ill and maybe praying to the gods maybe offering a sacrifice to the gods, you know, a, a vow. If you heal, you know, if you heal my child, I will dedicate the following um, to you, and maybe to a god traditionally associated with healing, like Asclepius. Um, but maybe to Juno, maybe to Zeus, maybe to maybe to the household gods. You know, the gods who were specifically associated with the household and, and the family. So I think lots of different lots of different practices with the festivals there is usually a deity associated with that so the saturnalia for example is a festival in honor of the god saturn even though at the end of the the day the rituals don't have a lot to do with 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 saturn so i think yeah. there's a there's a traditional pantheon of of gods and and that they really kind of play a prominent role in particular festivals, civic festivals, official festivals. But then I think on a personal or, or a household level, people were worshiping all sorts of gods in different ways for, you know, for, for different purposes, sometimes individually, sometimes as the household, I think it's, it's a, it's a sphere where women certainly were, I think more active, um, and, and independently active than we might have thought previously, Um, Nothing to stop a woman from making a vow to to the gods or performing um, a ritual on her own, in addition to maybe something she did with her husband or did with, you know, the whole household.
0: And Saturnalia is an interesting festival. That is the one around the winter solstice. Right. Um, So near Christmas. (laughs) um, And that one involved kind of some role
1: reversal as well, didn't it? Right. So scholars have often argued on the basis of, again, elite sources who who really promoted this notion that it was a total rule reversals and slaves became free and free became slaves. Um, and when we look at the sources, the reality seems to be certainly um, what I've argued in, in my own research on the Saturnalia, that we need to be thinking about a, a more limited um, degree of rule reversal or, or sort of a, a maybe a graduated or graded graded reversal. Certainly, this was the biggest year-end holiday for slaves they had many more freedoms than they would have had at other times they were allowed to do things and and not work as much as they did previously but just as on you know plantations in the american south somebody had to cook the big christmas feast and it wasn't the master and the missus who were doing it and so we have the same thing happening in the roman world that yes this is a holiday that um, privileged slaves allowed them to to have freedoms and and leisure that they didn't have at other times there's lots of, of room for slaves to continue working um, there's a notion in some of the sources that there's a bit of resentment by elite masters that yes they're going to let the slaves have this holiday but you know when it when it ends it's back it's back to to the usual um, routine and and some you know some hints that maybe even in the course of the holiday, not all masters seem to want to spend time with their slaves, right? Again, we're sort of presented with this kind of idealistic picture that everybody's there together enjoying the revelry and enjoying these loosening of the norms. Um, but then we have sources like Pliny who talks about how he has this luck what would today we would call a luxury villa, you know, a huge, a huge country house. And one of the things that he says is great about it is that he has this room where it's practically soundproof for him. And he can go and continue with his studies and doing what he wants to do while his slaves are enjoying the Saturnalia party. And he says, like, he doesn't kind of muscle in, he doesn't encroach on them, and they don't encroach on him. And, you know, that's, I think, a good example of probably what happened in many elite households where people wanted to honor honor the day and maybe... Honor the spirit of the holiday, but only to a point that was comfortable for them.
0: I'm thinking of some of the scenes that we've seen uh, in Downton Abbey or in The Crown, where there's this uh, a token dance with the head of the household and you know the butler the butler and the housekeeper and and but then they kind of go their separate ways and the staff carries on because you know it's kind of like having a party with your boss i guess right right? like it, it there's there's power the power dynamics are still there
1: i mean even even with the the feasting which was the the central part of of the saturnalia ancient sources record various configurations sometimes they involve slaves and masters eating together sometimes it's the slaves having a meal on their own maybe they're served by the master one source says they should be served by the master's children, right? So again, I, I think you know this kind of trying, trying maybe to to honor the the spirit of the holiday but people not necessarily as you said you know it's not comfortable it's not comfortable for employees to to have lunch with the boss necessarily um and and so we we kind of have hints of that from ancient sources about how slaves felt um there there are some sources where slaves talk about the fact that when the master's away it's sort of you know that's when they really kind of can relax and let loose and so you think well maybe people were just as happy not to have lots of elite masters owned multiple houses with multiple slave staffs well obviously you couldn't be in five at five different properties at the same time and so maybe for those four households where the master and his family were not going to show up for the Saturnalia maybe the slaves were just as happy to not have a big party and just carry on with what they were doing because they didn't have to deal with the discomfort of this kind of artificial right it's it's a temporary period where people can let loose but it's really art I think it was very it was very artificial
0: yeah it sounds it sounds like it's um as complex as our idea of Christmas like there's just so many ways of of celebrating and so many different factors and so many different different activities and traditions and 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 that kind of thing so it's really diverse and not not necessarily as homogenous as would be convenient at times I suppose in in textbooks.
1: (laughs) No I think you're absolutely right I think diversity and complexity are are probably the the bywords here because you know we're again we're presented with these idealized pictures from ancient sources and most of these religious most of the religious festivals I work on the sources are fragmentary and so you're kind of having to pull together from lots of different sources to create basically a composite picture a mosaic. Well when you create that you don't know what Really happened, and again, well, what what happened in the provinces? What happened in a smaller household? Um, What happened when the master was away? What happened? You know, we have sources like Cicero talking about being away with the army during the Saturnalia. Well, I don't know. Did his wife and his children carry on without him? Um, So I think I think you're right that what we're presented with is often one picture that is is not necessarily reflective of what would have happened in in such a diverse large empire.
0: So I want to explore this idea of sources a little bit more, because I know relatively recently you published a source book textbook on the Roman Roman family was it specifically on family? the, city of, Rome. Or, on the C- city of Rome city of Rome. Thank you. And a source book is a textbook that brings together translations of pieces of text on particular themes and kind of groups it. It's a it's a, a convenient tool for for. Professors and, and and students to kind of engage in that without having to you know track down hundreds of different documents. So obviously somebody has to translate some of those sources, and that takes us to the question of Latin and the study of Latin. You see where I was going with that. Um, so obviously you had to learn Latin at some point. Um, Listeners know I have I did my Classics MA here and I, I had to learn Latin. I, I, I remember very well learning Latin. Um, Latin has a reputation of being very difficult and a lot of hard work, as does fairly uh, ancient Greek, I suppose. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about about why, why we need to study it, um, if we're going to understand the ancient world. And, you know, is this reputation of Latin as a dead language and kind of irrelevant? Is that really fair? And I think I know how you're going to answer that. But anyway, I w- I'd like to hear you.
1: <laughs> so, so first, I, I, I think, I think it's a, I'll start with the misconception that Latin is a dead language. Language is always the key to understanding culture. Um, there are still people who speak Latin. And even though there are not a lot of people around speaking the language, if, If sort of people define a language being living on the basis of people continuing to use it, then certainly people continue to to use Latin. Um, So I think this idea that it's sort of a a dead language and it's not relevant, I think it doesn't hold water. I, I think that once you start to to study the language and you realize that in learning the forms and learning the structures, the grammar, that you're learning about how people thought. You're learning about what was important to them. You're learning about how they conceptualize things. You're learning to a certain extent about about feelings and and sentiments that I think that sort of starts to shift things from being a dead language to a a language that you can animate. Um, And I think that that's the Mm -hmm. the responsibility in large part of of whoever's teaching it to to make this language that mostly students are seeing on paper, they're hearing as well, but to to make that feel like it's something vibrant and, and active. And I think that once students start to see that there are direct connections between their Latin learning and their learning of other languages. Certainly all the romance languages have their, their roots in Latin, but that 60% of our English language comes from Latin. Um, I think that once they can start to make those connections and they say, Oh, right, I see this word it's related to, to such and such that I use in English, or, Oh, that's interesting. That's the same thing in French. Or that's the same thing, you know, that we learned in my Italian class, that they start to make these connections and it. It again sort of shifts from being this language that's on paper that sort of seems dusty and dry to something that's, um, you know, much more, um, much more interesting and exciting. Um, in my intro Latin class, we just had our Latin seminar once a week. We have a reading, a reading seminar and we read Latin adaptations of Greek myths. And we laugh a lot and the <laughs> students find them funny and they sometimes find them weird and, and, and they engage with the material. And I think, if the, again, if, if the material can be something that's interesting where pe- people can feel they have a foothold, whether it's because they see the connection with vocabulary or structure or be, they start to get some insights into the culture, then it starts to become something that, that isn't dusty and dry, but it, it's interesting and it's fun. Um, in terms of the, the idea that language language learning is difficult and it's, it's hard. I think that attitude, which is the same kind of attitude that a lot of people have about learning math. And I hear people say like, well, I just can't do math. Or I just, I just, I don't get, I don't get grammar. I can't, I can't do languages. And and I, I think that's simply not true. Of course, not everyone is, is going to become a, a field medalist, right? And not everyone is going to become an eminent Latin scholar. But I think that doesn't mean that people can't learn and appreciate the language um, and, and find ways for it to be meaningful and and to resonate with that. I mean, part of it for students is is moving beyond the kind of the forms and, and the, the boring sentences to being able to read real text, to be able to say, this is, you know, this is a two line. My students just did this on a test. I put a two line poem on there and I said to them, this is real Latin. This is the same text that was written 2200 years ago that you just read you read the same thing that somebody else could have read a real a real roman could have read and i think it's those moments um, where where students start to to make that shift from like yes this might be this might be challenging lots of subjects require people to work hard right you don't become a a great musician or a good athlete without spending time practicing your craft right so why would language or any other dis latin any discipline be something that doesn't require you to invest some some labor and some emotion into getting better at at doing it.
0: And I found too, from my own experience, maybe not so much in the moment, but certainly as I progressed in Latin classes and, and, and even afterwards, it gave me insight into the whole translation process because that is what we were doing. And There's like, we even take it for granted today, like on Google, right? Like it'll, Google Chrome will like translate a page for you. And and, and we kind of think of it as like a one-for-one substitution, but so often it is so much more complicated than that because the story of English and the development of English has all of these, as you were saying, all of these different ideas wrapped up with it. So it doesn't necessarily have that one-for-one word. It's not just a substitution.
1: Right, and I, I think beginning Latin students, I'm, I'm always struck by it doesn't matter how many times, I, I love teaching intro Latin, but it doesn't matter how many times, what the class is, which book I'm using, students always want to know, did I get it right? Did I get the answer? And I say to them, and it kind of blows their minds and they have to, to sort of mull it over, I say to them, this sentence could have five or six different translations and they would all be correct right because some of it as you said is sort of the semantic range and trying to understand culturally what's the valence of this word sometimes it's simply your preference do you put an adverb here do you put it there what's the word order you like which of the five definitions in your textbook did you pick for this word and they're all correct in context maybe one is a little bit more of a natural fit but you're not wrong for choosing that one so i think students get very hung up on the right answer but you're right that translation i mean it's a process and it's an art and the the further, the more comfortable you get, I think, with a language. You get to that point where it no longer feels like this kind of constantly sort of scary unknown endeavor. That am I going to get to the right answer? That then there's there's sort of the joy in grappling with. Well, maybe I want this word, or maybe I want that, or maybe it's this, or I don't know. There's more than one interpretation to to this. Grammatically, this could be more than one than one thing. And then you start to to have that um, kind of deeper engagement with the text. And I think that's um, that's the really fun part. That you're starting to understand how, how people thought you bring your knowledge, that your knowledge of the ancient world, your knowledge of the modern world, your knowledge of language, to the process of translating. And then you, you realize that, it, as you said, it's not necessarily this kind of um, one-to-one correspondence.
0: Yeah, and listeners who are curious about that, I mean, they, you could just look at several translations from the past you know century and a half of something like Ovid and see how... Um, there's there's one that, that I'm thinking of right now that I've got a copy of and it's done in a very um, let's get the spirit of the poetry and not what would these people have said or these characters have said in contemporary language right. and then you think of some of the ones like uh, particularly the older ones that are out of copyright and you can find online and they're like these and and f's and you know and uh the, you know it's it's very much it's it's very formal and very structured and and uh, they're still translating the same original text, but they come up
1: with two completely different products. Right, and I think I think that's something that, that for students, not so much in, in Latin or ancient Greek classes, but in other classes and classics, that, that's something that they have to, to kind of come to terms with that not every translation is a great translation, right? As you said, a, an archaic translation that's available in the public domain might be technically accurate, but if, it, if you can't understand it because you don't use that kind of archaic language, then how is your reader going to, to understand it? Similarly, you know, there are texts that um, excellent scholars have translated where they've tried to make them very, you know, very relevant for a contemporary audience. And sometimes people say like, uh, you've kind of pushed that a little bit too far because that's not, doesn't match up culturally. The Romans wouldn't have thought about something that way or they wouldn't have expressed it that way. And so I think there's, you know, there, there's kind of a, a continuum, but it's hard sometimes for students, especially if they don't study, Latin or Greek to know is is this a translation that's okay like it's a translation that I got online or it's a translation that I got from the library but then to to kind of do that work of assessing whether it's Um, whether it's a good translation whether it fits the whether it fits the purposes right Mm -hmm. and translation is a you know a whole um, art and and sort of discipline and you know unto itself
0: but it is a great exercise in in thinking about some of those some of those cultural I want to say cultural baggage but like the cultural connotations that come along just with the words that we use and what it says about us as much as what it says about the source
1: Right, and I and I think those are the those are the kinds of conversations that you know we sometimes think about beginning language as something that oh you know you, the students don't know anything and everything is new and you can't you know kind of get into these discussions and um, we just did this in my intro Latin class um, yesterday we were translating the word which in English we would translate it as as virtue virtus and and I said to the students that inside of this Latin word is the weir. it's the it's the man it's the Roman hero it's a word that is very much bound up with ideas of masculinity and, and excellence. And so it's not the same as our English word virtue, right? We use virtue in English. Mm -hmm. I think we apply it to, to women, men, it's it's not gender specific. It's not age specific. It's not class specific. Um, but virtus is something that operates differently in, in Latin. And so, you know, it was sort of a a moment where they could see that, again, the language is the key to, to learning about the culture and the, the two are intertwined. And once you start understanding the language, you start understanding the culture. So,
0: I want to talk a little bit more about teaching. I mean, I, I, I could talk about translation for a while, but uh, for our listeners' sake, <laughs> perhaps um, I want to move on and talk a, talk a little bit about your teaching. I think it's fair to say that you have a reputation as being a, as being a very caring instructor and somebody who takes who takes pedagogy um, very thoughtfully. You've had uh, an award at Brock. You've had an award from the let me get this right, the Classical Association of the Middle West and South, which is one of the big classics associations in North America. A, f- a finalist rather than... Rather oh, a, than oh, a finalist. But, okay. that, but that's okay. Well, you know yep. what? It doesn't matter. It's still a big organization and <laughs> it's still you. something to be a finalist in that. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about what motivates your teaching? I, you've already kind of hinted at it, but like, what is it that you that that you love about teaching? What makes you so excited to teach? You know, first year, first year Latin, and all of these other courses.
1: Yeah, um, so I mean, I, I actually prefer teaching Latin, even though my my research love and and most of my research focuses on on Roman social history. I don't publish a lot in Latin literature, a little bit on on Ovid, but um, my my research my research love is is social history. Um, but my teaching love is is really teaching Latin, and and I think there it's being able to see students on this journey where they, regardless of what level, but especially especially you know the the first year course where students start with no knowledge of Latin and within a couple of classes they're able to translate short sentences from Latin to English. Theoretically they could go the the other way and English into Latin and so you're watching this journey where they're they're making progress sometimes you know sometimes it's incremental but sometimes if they really were to step back they'd say like wow this is kind of leaps and leaps and bounds. I didn't know any of this a couple of days ago. I say to my class you know you're on chapter nine of this textbook right you've covered nine chapters in in six weeks think about how much you've learned in in those six weeks and so being able to see them have those kind of eureka moments where um, they make this connection themselves where things start to come together and of course once students can can work with the original you know they're sort of yes there's there's there are the declensions and the conjugations and being able to create the paradigm and that's wonderful but it's really being able to see work with the language in action and when you see students being able to translate and they have these moments where they they got it and they're they're really excited because it's coming together and as I said before you know they're reading a piece of real text that's existed for you know over 2,000 years and um, just sort of watching watching that that journey is great being able to help not everybody has natural aptitude for language and so um, for me it's super rewarding when a student has struggled and um, they nail a quiz or they nail a quiz within the confines of for them what nailing a a quiz is and um, it's really it's really great to have you know sometimes the the most enjoyable students that I've taught have not been the students who are getting A's in the class maybe they're the students who are getting C's or the students who are getting B's but who have a terrific attitude and they love coming to class and they say like this is my favorite class or I just you know I really I really I really like you guys and uh, though I wish intro Latin was a big class. Um, one at one time it was, you know, I used to teach 54 students in, in a section. Um, now I have 18. Um, at the same time, when you have 18 students, you get to know all of them. I know everybody's first name and last name. I know their handwriting. Um, I, I know, and they get to know each other. They get to know each other. They get to know you a little bit. You know, the seminar, especially is a moment where people can kind of relax a little bit, let their hair down. And, um, so it's, it's, you know, you're you're using this, you're teaching this material that for me is exciting. I'm passionate about it. And the students are are excited about it too. And so I I love I love helping students on that journey. I love teaching Latin at all levels. And once you get to, you know, senior or graduate classes, then it's it's on a whole different scale. Then you're you know, then you sort of feel like you're you're working kind of with um, you know, maybe not quite peers, but jun you know, junior scholars and people are starting to make these connections and they're challenging your interpretation of the grammar and they're you know complaining about the commentary because they have a different (laughs) a different read on things and it's and it's great because especially when you've taught those students which is sometimes the case that I've I've taught a student in first year latin and then they're in our master's program and you see that you know four or five years later they've gone from not knowing the language at all to being able to, to work with it in an advanced scholarly way. I mean, it's, and, and that you played a part in, in helping them on, on that journey. Um, it's, it's great. Yeah.
0: I wish our listeners could see your face as you're talking about <laughs> Latin because your love and your passion for teaching it really, really does come across. But I am curious to know, um, does Latin improve your Wordle score? I don't know if you play I Wordle. Do play Wordle. In okay. fact, I, I actually actually Allison, I play Wordle in
1: English and I play Wordle in Spanish. Um, I don't think I don't think Latin helps with either English or Spanish Wordle. But Latin definitely helps when I watch Jeopardy. And Latin helps when I play Scrabble. Uh, my family's a big Scrabble playing family. And, and so I, I think even though my parents studied Latin in, in high school, you know, they, they gave that up when they got to university. And so I, have, I think I have the edge there. But I think, I think Latin really pays off with Jeopardy. There are a lot of Jeopardy clues that are, are Latin, Latin based. And, and then, you know, of course, classical mythology plays a role, too. And that's not my strong suit. I don't know
0: if they still do it, but Reader's Digest used to do the word power feature. And I was very unfortunate and, and, and I think somewhat unusual um, in that I got to do a bit of Latin in, in, in high school because there's not a lot of high schools in Ontario that offer offer Latin courses. And our high school teacher every week... Would give us a word power thing, and I—that was my favorite part of the entire week. I mean, I immensely enjoyed the class anyway, but uh, being able to kind of puzzle out and then match it with the meaning—and of course, there are English words that do not come from Latin—but but it is amazing how how much it can help you, certainly. And I should plug here as well the um, the the course the department offers on on etymology right on the, the word power yeah. right yeah yeah you never know where it's going to come to be useful
1: and, <laughs> and and i think i think you're you're absolutely right that you know i mean there there are students who study first year latin and this is true for first year greek as well where maybe they're not going to do any further language study but that little bit of latin that little bit of greek can as you said you know in, inform your understanding of, of other things and and certainly you know it's the the basis for scientific and medical technology terminology uh, legal terminology, t- legal, legal terminology yeah, and yeah. and so that little bit whether you do it through latin and greek or you do it through, um, you know, our, our course on, on word power, um, you know, gives you that greater understanding of vocabulary. And as you said, it's the ability to puzzle it out. I mean, I think that's, what's exciting about studying language and particularly a language like Latin is that it's a lot of decoding and and sort of deciphering things and putting the puzzle pieces together in, in the right order. So just um, as we wrap up here, because I could geek out about this all afternoon with you,
0: I want to talk a little bit about the Department of Classics and Archaeology. You did recently have a name change, which um, there's a nice Brock News article I'll, I, I will link to in the footnotes about how how that change came, came about. Um, but part of department life is... The events and the activities around the department and professors are expected in addition of course to their research and their teaching obligations to take on um, a service opportunity so whether that's you know sitting on a university committee or whether it's organizing department events and I know the uh, classics department has always been very active in organizing events for your students, including Saturnalia parties in December, which uh, were always a big hit. So I was just curious, what kinds of things are you involved in behind the scenes, so to speak, in the department and in that student life and student engagement and just making the department a collegial place to be?
1: So I have various service roles in the department, I guess, and in terms of student engagement. Um, this is the second year that I'm serving as our undergraduate program officer and so i advise students on the the courses that they're taking and particularly you know students who are getting close to to graduating but sometimes students you know starting out want to know am i kind of doing the right thing or what if i wanted to switch to a different stream and so um, i do a a certain amount of of that work um i've organized as as you know because you were a guest last year a a careers event and and we really try in in classics and archaeology to bring in either alumni and you are an alumna of the department but um even you know people who are who are not alumni of the department um to to show what you know what are the the many diverse career paths that that they could take using their degree in classics and and archaeology and and that was something that um, I really enjoyed last year having these conversations with Brock employees who have classics backgrounds that people might not have have known about Um, and then we had an event that I organized in in April called the Floralia which is an opportunity to celebrate our students who are graduating to celebrate our award winners and also to celebrate some alumni and um, we had three alumni last year who who spoke about their careers again diverse careers and Um, So being able to to kind of um, help students with that, both their current studies, but also kind of that next phase um, is is something that I enjoy. Um, Last year, my colleague Sarah Parker and I started uh, something called the Mensa Latina. We really wanted to to encourage community among students who were either studying Latin or enthusiastic about the Roman world. And um, obviously the the pandemic made things um, challenging. But in the winter, we were able to have four sessions. These were um, informal sessions where students got together and had an opportunity to learn things about the Roman world and Latin that we wouldn't have covered in classes. So we talked about jokes and humor. uh, We talked about pet keeping. We talked about manuscripts. uh, We talked about games and and play. And um, it was a a really nice it was an hour once a week, a really nice opportunity for students to develop some some camaraderie. We had a lot of fun. Um, Who doesn't want to find out if Cicero was funny or uh, what (laughs) sorts of what sorts of games, what sorts of games people played in, in the Roman world. And so um, I like doing that as, as well. And then I'm also our library rep and um, various, various roles. I'm, I'm a big fan and proponent of our library here. So um, being library rep is a, a kind of natural fit for me as well.
0: Excellent. And listeners who have not had the opportunity to, to translate Latin before will maybe very surprised at just uh, how adult, explicit, But also very funny. It's very not Victorian.
1: (laughs) Yes, I I think that's a good point. That again, and and this kind of comes back to the sort of Latin being a, you know, a, a dead or a dusty language that. Any culture has, um, you know, sort of the good, the bad and and the ugly. And and so, yes, you're right that there's um, there's vulgar humor. There's a lot of sexual content. There's beautiful love poetry. There's incredibly touching epitaphs for for people. There's all sorts of there's all sorts of things. And of course, you can't bring all of that into um, a first year, a first year Latin class. But I think that's that's one of the joys of continuing to study, whether people study Latin in the original or they're studying it in translation that that you have access to a culture that, um, you know, ran the, the gamut of, you know, touching and, and beautiful and sentimental to vulgar and, um, homophobic, misogynistic, you, you name it, right. That you get, it's all there. you get every, exactly. It's all there. It's all there in any culture. Um, and so to have access to those different kinds of, of views, um, you know, I think is great. If you can do it through the original, it gives you kind of even more of an insight into how people thought and felt. And if you have to do it through translation, then that's um, okay. Too. It, that, exactly. That's yeah. okay. That's that's okay too.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I have had a wonderful time. I'm sure our listeners have, have really enjoyed hearing from you today. And we'll be putting some links in the show notes to some of your publications and um, some information about the department as well, if people are curious about some of these activities and uh, whatnot that you've told us about today. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Alison. It's been a, a real pleasure. I think we probably could have could have used the whole afternoon, but we'll we'll leave it at that thank you for listening
0: to forward find our footnotes links to more information transcripts and past episodes on our website brocku.ca slash humanities we love to hear from our listeners so join us on twitter facebook and instagram at brockhumanities. please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.